WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to City Talk. We have a gentleman that has done something I wish I could have and should have done, written some books on some TV series like Quincy, uh, Route 66, Naked City, Wagon Train, The Invaders, and other books as well, and Peyton Place. And uh, his name is Jim Rosen. He is in Philadelphia at the moment. Jim, congratulations on a great accomplishment to be able to do all that. Well, thank you. Now, I know from talking with you, and I'm going to start out talking about Quincy, that, that you were able to do some acting and even acted in that show. How did all that come about? Are you from California? No, I was born and raised in Philadelphia. And I, after graduating from uh, uh, school, uh, here in Philadelphia, I I moved to L.A. to pursue an acting career. I didn't start writing. Actually, I had written a couple of stories for two of the TV shows that were on at the time, The Virginian and Mannix, but, um, and I got them to the proper channels, but uh, they, they didn't buy them. And uh, that was pretty much the end of my writing at that point. I was, from then on, uh, pursuing an acting career. It wasn't until, let's see, gosh, uh, oh, close to 10 years later that I started writing. Ah, uh, again, you wrote Mannix. That's one of my favorite shows too. I, well, I, yeah, that would, that turned out to be a good situation for me because, um, the, the producer, there were two producers on the show, uh, Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts, and they had been, Big, big time screenwriters in the late 40s, early 50s. They wrote, for example, they wrote White Heat with James Cagney and a lot of other movies. Um, they were uh, now older and involved in television. They did a TV series called The Rogues with David Niven and Charles Boyer and Gig Young. And and then, um, then they wrote episodic TV shows. And then I think in the late 60s, they became the producers of Mannix for... Bruce Geller, who was the uh, executive producer of Mannix and Mission Impossible at Paramount. So uh, he took a shine to me. He was a good guy. I guess I reminded him of one of his sons, Ivan. He was from Australia, and uh, he tried to help me. Uh, He tried to get me a job at the studio and uh, as a messenger. And then um, he suggested that maybe I would be better off trying to get a night job uh, when that didn't work out, uh, because a lot of actors wanted to keep their days free. So, um, in any event, uh, I kept in touch with him, and then a few years later, uh, when I started to, after I had studied uh, and began to do plays, and hence a few TV shows here and there, I did I did two episodes of Mannix, uh, uh that Ivan uh, cast me in. So that it turned, he turned out to be a good contact. And I learned at that point that really the business to this day is based on referrals. You know, uh, you can have an agent and uh, he could submit you for different roles to the various casting directors. Today it's done electronically, by the way, but 
you know, the chances are, are, are really slim that, that he can get you an audition unless you're with a very powerful agent. But a powerful agent is not going to take you if you're just getting started. They, they are interested in established people that can command a huge amount of money, you know. So um, uh, if you know someone in the business and they happen to be aware of your talent and, and know you personally, uh, then they can refer you to a casting director or a director who are the two people in a position to hire you for a, a job on an episodic television show. And that's basically how it works. The same thing revolves around getting representation. You know, someone can refer you to an agent who gets submissions all the time from various sources, people wanting representation. But if he gets a referral from someone he knows and trusts, then he will, you know, pay attention to you. So that word referral is a very, very significant term in the entertainment industry today. And it was then. Well, I, I envy you because I, I loved Mike Connors. I go way back with Mike Connors. When he was on a show that only lasted a year, which Tight I rope. loved. Tightrope, exactly. Uh, he used to carry the he used to carry his snub nose revolver in the in the in, his, in the back in the back. Yep. <laughs> in his back waistband, yeah. <laughs> yep. And his name and his real and his name on the they didn't use it much, but his name was Nick Stone. I remember that. Nick Stone, uh, yeah. He was uh, Armenian of Armenian descent, Mike. Uh, his real name was Ohanian. Yeah. Yeah. He was a I nice knew- man. He was a basketball player at UCLA. Yeah, he was he was he was a nice guy. I liked him. He he uh you know, the first one that I did, I played a bartender and I I kept moving because I was a bartender uh at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Uh that's it was my first my, my second job in LA and I worked there for a few years and then I went to several of the country clubs and it was a very good job and I met a lot of people in the industry. Uh, because the Beverly Hills Hotel was a haven for it. So anyway, I got a part uh, as a bartender, and it was a scene between Mike and another actor named Paul Jenkins, who was also from Philly. And um, I remember the episode. It was called All the Dead Were Strangers. Ah. And it was a very, very interesting, yeah, an interesting episode. And um, i got to try and find it. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Um, the The scene was in a bar, and I started to move uh, when they ordered drinks. And, you know, w- when when you rehearse the scene, they block it for the camera. So they, they'll, they'll tape marks on the floor, and you're supposed to hit your marks when you, uh, you know, when you act in the scene. Because if you don't, you'll be out of frame or out of focus or... Uh, out of your lighting uh, that that they that they prepare for, yeah. so I had a tendency. This was my only my second job at the time, and I had a tendency to move. So <laughs> John Penner, who was the camera operator, kept hollering out, "He's moving out of he's moving he's moving he's out of frame." And then we'd start again. He's out of frame a second time, and then Mike said to me. Uh, very quietly, you know, 
uh, whispered in my ear, he says, just, just hug the bar. <laughs> so, so my, I went against my instincts because I was, you know, a trained bartender and I was very authentic in what I was doing, but you know, what good is it if you're not, uh, in the scene? So I, I, we, we shot the scene and, uh, went perfectly and the director, Les Martinson yelled cut and that was it. And ironically, John Penner, uh, became the uh, cameraman on Quincy years later. Uh-huh. And I uh, should distinguish for the listeners that the, the, the term cameraman is different than camera operator. A camera operator is literally what it, what it is. He operates the camera. The cameraman is the, is the director of photography. That's what, the, that's what he's called in, in feature films, a DP and television. They, tend to call him a cameraman. He's the one that uh, composes the shots and uh, helps to light the, light the scene. And then, you know, uh, then gives the instructions to the camera operator. And uh, that's, that's the hierarchy. And then sometimes there are camera assistants that load, load the camera when it needs to be, or move the camera on a, on a, if it's on a dolly. And those are, you know, uh, called dolly grips or assistant camera people. Um, but I had a nice experience. Then I did another one with, and I had a scene with, with Mike and Jack King, who I always liked. He was on a TV series called the 11th hour with Wendell Corey. And then later with Ralph Bellamy. And then he was, uh, on a lot of different shows, uh, uh throughout the years. And then he was on the A team for a while. He played one of the, uh, I think the commanders of the uh, of the uh, military that was always after uh, Hannibal and his crew, you know, uh, he had a very nice career, Jack. So I did the scene with those two, um, and Mannix was a nice experience. The crew was very uh, uh, were very nice. It was a shot at Paramount, and then also on location. And I, w- if I was ever working on a lot, I would sometimes just stop by the set and say hello to everybody, you know, the few people I got to, got to know. Uh, uh, it was, um, it was a very, very nice, uh, experience Mannix. Yeah. And I have fond memories of my, I did see him again. I think at universal years later, he was doing a picture called avalanche express with Linda Evans and Robert Shaw. And he was standing outside of the commissary this was maybe let's see, maybe four or five years later after the second one I did, and I saw him and I I said hello, Mike. I went over and said hello, and I said we worked together twice back in the early '70s, and he said, yeah, I remember. How are you? What are you doing here? And what's going on? You know, a real gentleman, very very down to earth and unassuming. Yeah, I had a chance to interview Connors once, and it was one of the great thrills of my life. I I yeah. I was fascinated by the man for some reason. And I also remember him in an Untouchables episode. Hmm. Um, and I think he popped up in a wagon train, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he but, was in a wagon train. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. Played now, heavy, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk about Quincy, one of my favorite shows in the whole world. I have Quincy, been watching, yeah. I've been watching some of those. I watched uh, an episode today called Let Me light the light or something like that if I let me light the way yeah that was about rape, light the I way. yes yes and i watched uh, another one called main man and yes uh, watched 
watched another one that was one of my favorites called Images about episodic twins. Yeah, that um, was with Jessica Jessica Walter. Yeah, I I mean they yeah, had she great was in, casts. Yeah, yeah, Ray Danton directed that. He wrote the story for it too. Oh wow! Uh, in and, fact, and, Ray Danton I think directed Main Man. You know, after he retired from acting, he did a lot of directing. Yeah, he was a very good director. He was he was uh, he knew how to get along with Jack and, uh, and right. get things done. You know, which was which could be tricky. You know. You had right, to know what you were you 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 had to know what you were doing on Quincy, and you had to be honest about what you didn't know. Uh, if you were a hack or jaded in some way, uh, you didn't you didn't work on Quincy, or if you did, that would be the last time. Uh, right. Jack was a consummate uh, professional, and he 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 had very high standards of excellence, you know. All right, let's but let's talk about the series. Uh, it was on NBC, um, yeah. and if I recall, it was on Wednesday nights at ten o'clock, um, yeah. which I which I never missed. But but tell us how it got started and and who came up with the idea and yeah, uh, you know how all the cast got got picked and everything like that. Well, it it began um, with Lou Shaw. Uh, and Glenn Larson. Glenn Larson was a very prolific producer at Universal. He did, you know, uh, he, he had been a songwriter and he had been one of the, uh, I think he was in the, the the 50s music group, I think the Four Freshmen. I think it was the Four Freshmen. I could be wrong. One of those groups. Uh, and uh, he later got into uh, writing and producing, and he was a very uh, powerful figure. Uh, he could sell anything to the network. So he, uh, I think the first show he came up with, or one of the first shows, was Switch with Eddie Albert and Robert Wagner, and Sharon Gliss was the secretary, I think. And that was shot at Universal, and uh, then he came up with the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, uh, Mysteries, and then Quincy. And then B.J. and the Bear and uh, Sheriff Lobo. I mean, he just went on and on and on. And um, I think Battlestar Galactic as well. And uh, he had an idea uh, to do a, uh, a show that I think Lou Shaw came, came up, actually came up with the idea about a forensic detective. Uh, but Glenn Larson's idea was more of a forensic detective uh, you know, running down the beach with and passing girls with bikinis and uh, gunshots and car chases and uh, the pathologist stepping over dead bodies and that sort of thing. You know, it was kind of tongue in cheek. And I think he envisioned Robert Wagner to play the role, but Robert Wagner was doing Switch and it turned out to be a hit. So uh, he was not available. Then I think they approached James Earl Jones, and he was not interested. <laughs> and in the meanwhile, uh, Lou Shaw really uh, had a different slant on it. He 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 really was very intrigued by the idea of a forensic detective who solved crimes and who done it in the laboratory, did it forensically. So anyway, uh, he was more the driving force in the creative end of it. I think Glenn Larson was more the driving force and actually uh, 
getting it sold to NBC, which he did. And then he became the executive producer. And uh, Lou Shaw did some writing on it. Uh, it began as a 90-minute show on, I think, the Sunday Night Movie Mysteries. It alternated, I think, with Columbo and McLeod and McMillan and wife. The problem was you never knew when it, they never knew when it was going to be on. It was an odd scheduling to follow. And I don't think Jack liked that. But they did five of them. And the ratings were so good. And the scripts were interesting. And uh, the network said, well, let's go to one hour. And Jack liked that because it could be shown at a fixed time every week. Well, uh, Jack was more interested, of course, in the science and also the social issues because he, be, he, he, he reasoned that the show was watched by millions of people every week and he could pick topics that were relevant and important and maybe change the way people thought and maybe maybe change some laws. I mean, he really was uh, very interested in that sort of thing. The episode that you mentioned, Let Me Light the Way, was a perfect example of that because that was a show of, that dealt with the destruction of evidence uh, in a rape case by the medical personnel inadvertently that would allow the perpetrator of the rape to go free. Whereas if they had saved the edaments, they could be, uh, uh, his culpability could be uh, ascertained in the laboratory by, by scientific uh, forensic evidence. So that was a perfect example. And he did a few more shows like that. He did one on domestic abuse about uh, uh, a boy that was abused by his stepfather called a good smack in the mouth. And uh, the networks didn't like it. And I don't think Len Larson did either. He was more interested in lighthearted uh, topics, although, yeah, I've solved in forensically. Uh, but Jack uh, wouldn't hear of it. He, he wanted none of that. And he challenged the networks. And uh, Glenn Larson wound up leaving the show after the first season because he had other shows on the lot. So he really didn't have to worry. And, you know, when you create a series or co-create it, you get paid every week it's on, whether or not you have uh, uh, creative input or not. Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts, who you know did Quince, did Mannix, they wrote the they they created Charlie's Angels for Aaron Spelling, and then they had nothing to do with the show after that. So every week you'd see on the screen, created by Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts, and they'd get a check for that. Uh -huh. For the four or five years it was on, you know. So anyway, Glenn Larson left. He and Jack just were not compatible creatively. And then Jack began his search for, you know, new producers and new writers. And um, uh, he battled with the networks about scripts because, again, they wanted uh, shows that were more caper shows and mysteries and not necessarily uh, shows that dealt with the social issues. They didn't think that the the ratings would hold up that way. And it turns out that they were wrong. And ultimately, uh, the more success the show had with the social issues, uh, the less the network reacted negatively and uh, left them left Jack alone. And 
Uh, that's the way the show uh, went on for years. Uh, there were uh, a number of social issue episodes. There were some uh, caper shows. There were some whodunits, some mysteries, sometimes a comedic show. And Jack Lugman could play, you know, uh, he could play a, uh, a very uh, humorous character as well as someone that was very intense and dramatic. You know, look at Odd Couple with Tony. Yeah, Randall. I, yeah I, I was just going to say he did that. He did that with the, the Odd yeah. Couple. I don't recall any humorous episode of Quincy, but I got to tell you, the episodes that I watch uh, and will continue to watch makes me kind of upset the way television is today. I don't think you can find drama like that anywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, there was a mix. Quincy was a, a mixture of, uh, of uh, a man uh, that could be humorous, a man that could be uh, very intense and very earnest uh, and uh, and very dramatic and uh that's it was a good blend you 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 talked to me about uh, john astin who played uh, john uh, reagan who played dr astin uh in a prior conversation well the, the secret i think i read that to you uh his commentary in the book that i did uh on the show the secret of their relationship was the tremendous amount of humor and that's what made it work because who who wanted to see him pounding his fist on the table all the time? There was enough of that as it is. So anytime they had the chance to inject humor, especially into uh, the relationship between Dr. Aston and Quincy, uh, they did because it just gave the, even if it may have been brief or in spots, it just gave the episode a little bit of a change of, of pace. And Jack was not one to shy away from, uh, uh, a moment of humor and he was yeah. he was a talented comedian if necessary um, the relationship between he and Robert Ito was very very good they very harmonious uh, Bob Ito was a uh, a ballet dancer from Canada he danced with the National Ballet of Canada which is where he grew up and uh, he subsequently uh, uh, went to Broadway as a dancer and then began to act in the plays as well. I think he he went uh, to New York with Flower Drum Song, if I'm not mistaken. And um, after touring on stage, he you know gave LA a try and began to work. And um, he was uh, you know a prominent actor in the uh, in the uh, the Oriental community. There was a very talented group of actors who were Korean, Japanese, Chinese, who uh, worked a lot in television and film. And, you know, of course, in the early years, you know, you had a lot of Caucasians that played Oriental roles, which when you look at it now seems ridiculous. But that, that was a sign of the times, you know, back in the 30s and 40s. You know, Charlie Chan, both both all three actors, the first actor um, uh, was Swedish. Uh, the second actor was from Georgia. Um, and the third actor, uh, I forget where he was from. They were all Caucasian men. Uh, the actors that played number one son, number two son, they were, or, uh, ironically, they were, you know, they were, <laughs> they were 
uh, Chinese or Korean. So uh, I don't know why. Uh, if you look at the movie The Good Earth, which was a heck of a movie, uh, Paul Muni was not uh, Chinese or Japanese or Korean, you know. Mm -hmm. He played a uh, an Oriental character, I think, uh, uh, Louise Rayner. Uh, she won an Academy Award, same thing. So, uh, you know, in more modern times, they insisted on it. And uh, there was a group, uh, I think, in in, uh, in Hollywood at the time. It was it was a stock company, all composed of uh, uh, Oriental actors. They were a wonderful group of people. And now, they were the people that worked in TV and movies. I, I, I've heard the phrase cattle call used mm -hmm. about trying to find actors and actresses. Did they have to, I mean, these people were perfect for the roles. Um, did they have to do that to find these guys? Or did, did Klugman say, hey, look, I know this guy would be perfect to play Sam Fujiyama. Or I know this guy who would be perfect to play Bob Aston. Well, I don't know. When it comes to a minority group, minority ethnicity, the cattle calls don't enter into it because they're not that many to choose from. Mm -hmm. And first of all, they're right away they're going to listen to the agents that have clients that are people that are, uh, you know, uh, the, the the right ethnicity that have worked a lot in the business, and they're going to they're going to interview those people and see who the best. Uh, most appropriate person is for the job, you know. You know, a lot of television uh, uh, is personality and type. It it doesn't necessarily have to do with talent. You can go in and read for a part, and you could be very honest and truthful and believable, but you you may not possess the, the personality or the the physicality of the character that they want. Uh, another actor may have the physicality, but he may not have the personality, uh, or he may have the personality and the talent, not uh, the, or or one of the other things may be missing, the physicality, whatever. Oh, so it, it'll take searching to find the right actor that has is physically what they want, is, has the personality that they like. And is is the right age range, and is that character? And then, of course, they if if it's the lead, the co-lead in the series, they they would probably revert to a screen test. And I think uh, I think Jack may have done a screen test with Bobito. I'm not mm -hmm. sure, but they were they were compatible, and uh, Bob stayed on the show for what the seven or eight years the show was on. Now I'm always, you know, he was very happy with the cast. You know, uh, 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 John Reagan was a very good actor and uh, was able to stand up to Jack and became, in a way, like Sam, like Bobito, his Rock of Gibraltar. Uh, Gary Wahlberg, who played Lieutenant Monaghan, was an old friend of Jack's from New York. He was in The Odd Couple. He was one of those players in the card games they had, you know. Yeah. Uh, Joe Roman, who played Sergeant Brill, was... From South Philly, he was Jack's next door neighbor. He had oh. been in a lot of movies and uh, TV shows, so he was cast as Sergeant Brill. And Val Basolio, who played Danny, um, who is a very talented actor. Val is still with us, I believe, in Northern California or Central California somewhere. Mm. He was um, a New York actor, and Jack respected him because he loved to do theater. And uh, 
and he had a very unique situation with Quincy. He would come in and work maybe one day a week and shoot his scenes in the bar or if he was involved in other ways, he would uh, shoot those scenes and then and then go home, you know. He yeah. worked one day, two days a week, and he had no contract for the seven or eight seasons. He had a handshake deal with Jack, and that meant that Val could uh, be free to go and do a movie when he wanted. So, if, for example, he was in Saturday Night Fever. He was John Travolta's father. Uh, in the movie with uh, Gene Wilder and Harrison Ford, about the uh, the rabbi in the old west, he was mm-hmm. the engine chief, so um, he had freedom, and that's what he insisted on. And Jack, since Jack knew how talented he was and respected his integrity, he said, "Okay." And that was the secret of getting along with Jack as a director, as a writer, an actor. If you knew mm-hmm. what you were doing. Um, for a director, if he if he understood what the scene was about and what Quincy and the other actors wanted and what they were up against, in other words, their intentions and their conflicts, and you brought something that you brought that to the table, he respected that. He and he would listen. He was not a closed-minded individual. He would he would listen to uh, other suggestions, but if if they weren't up to snuff, he would dismiss them right away. Because his ideas were pretty good. He was wrong once in a while, but most of the time he was right. And he was very involved in the scripts. And, um, you know, I did two scripts with him. And uh, he he just, you know, he had a very good story sense of what worked and what didn't work. And he was largely responsible for the success of Quincy. It wasn't until the third or fourth year that he began to get a writing staff that he liked. In those days, you had a uh, you had the executive producer was usually a hyphenate, which is a writer producer, you know, someone that started out as a writer and elevated to become an executive producer, and they would take the scripts that came in from freelance writers that uh, had a, a good idea of the show but didn't know all the nooks and crannies, and they would tailor the script. They would rewrite the script here and there and tailor it to the exact needs of the show. And then they had maybe an executive script consultant or a story editor, either one, depending upon the show, how it was titled, that would do the same thing, that would help rewrite scripts. Nowadays, you have about six or seven executive producers. They're all hyphenates. And especially with the series that are done on Showtime and uh, HBO, as well as some of the networks, they formulate a lot of the stories, uh, especially with cable, the cable series beforehand, when it's a continuing narrative, and there's no outside writers that come in. They're, it's all done in-house and done by a staff of six executive producers because they're, in essence, the writers, and they have the advantage over someone freelancing because they know all the nooks and crannies and what they want to do and what they don't want to do. And then each one of them will sit down and write a segment. And there may be a few writers that come in and do uh, scripts here and there, but by and large, the, the, uh, the formulation and adherence to it and the narrative, especially with the two uh, cable networks where they do 10 or 12 episodes a season, uh, it's all it's all based on what the uh, the writers do in house. Yeah, but was there that a was medical? What was done? 
Was there a yeah. medical yes. consultant? Yeah, Victor yeah. Rosen, the late Victor Rosen, he was a forensic pathologist, and he would proof the script. Like, I would do my research, and I would write, and I would go to different sources. Uh, one script I did the story for, uh, I was living in New York at the time. I had left California, and I was writing it from New York. And I would go out to Brooklyn Heights and sit with Dr. Dominic DeMeo, who was the former chief medical examiner of New York City. He was retired. He would sit with me on the uh, on the promenade overlooking the, uh, the the southern end of of Manhattan from the Upper Bay, and uh, give me all these uh, medical pointers because I I wanted to uh, uh, formulate a for forensic. Uh, uh, situation that was very authentic that would stump Quincy. And he was able to give me that. And uh, so I would go to different people for different things, uh, according to the script and the medical uh, ingredients in this forensically. And then uh, when all was said and done, and the script was written and, and polished as far as we could polish it, then Vic Rosen would come in and read the script and he would uh, correct any technical uh, errors or add anything that was uh, authentic that needed to be, and that's the how it uh, how it went. Uh, uh, gosh, I forget Mark's name last name. He was the lab assistant in the last three or four years, and he knew how to operate all the equipment, which was on loan from these big companies. A very expensive uh, forensic equipment. It was very authentic. And uh, on stage 25, we had the uh, the sets for the laboratory, and uh, the doors were specially mounted on pins so that they could sw swing open easily, and the camera could dolly through. You know, if it was a, a trucking shot moving from the the corridor, uh, Quincy walking down the corridor into the uh, uh, examination room, it was it would be able to be done with facility. Uh, and then we had his uh, his office. We had Danny's bar. These were all permanent sets, meaning they were never struck because they were always used in the various episodes. And then there was the interior of his boat. Uh, and then there were some freestanding sets that maybe were uh, struck and then reconstructed or addressed according to the episode. But a lot of times you would go to another stage on the lot for something like that. Uh, if there was a courtroom scene, they would look for a courtroom. Uh, if there was no courtroom set that had been built for another show uh, uh, that they couldn't use, they would rent. And one episode I did, we went out to Monrovia, which was a suburb outside of LA, and uh, worked two days there uh, shooting a courtroom sequence. Uh, when it was a scene to be done in a hospital in Pacoima, which was out in the valley, uh, maybe half an hour from Universal City in the studio. Uh, there was a, a, an abandoned hospital that uh, w was abandoned because of the earthquake in 1970. It was, it was termed unsafe. So uh, Rockford Files, Quincy, Incredible Hulk, all the shows that were filming on Universal uh, a lot, the Universal lot in the 70s, would go there if they had, they were shooting an episode with a hospital scene. And uh, they would go in, the, the prop people, and dress 
dress the various rooms, meaning put in equipment and furniture and uh, decorate the set, make it look like it was a, an active hospital, shoot the scenes, and then leave. And if there was another show coming in after them, they would leave it. But if they weren't, they would take everything with them and you would walk through uh, an abandoned hospital with barren rooms. So that that served as a uh, on-location site for all hospital scenes and courtrooms, as I said. They would go to a real-life courtroom when they didn't have a, a standing set on a lot. And basically, the show was shot in six days. Universal was very tough about that. They, they were on an economy binge and they issued an edict that all shows would be done by in six days as opposed to seven. And at that day, at that time, there was a show was about 48, close to 48, nine minutes of film. Nowadays, it's 43. And uh, so that means you had about a 60 page script, give or take. So you would have to shoot, you know, uh, sometimes nine, 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 ten pages a day. And that was a lot of work. As a Quincy would start 8.30 in the morning, and they would shoot till, you know, maybe 6 or 7 at night on the stage. If they had night shooting, they would, all the shows did this, they would reserve that for the for Friday nights. Because according to the their union rules, if you brought back an actor within eight hours, um, you would pay a penalty. So on... Friday night, since shows were not shot on the weekends, you could shoot late and you could not have to pay that penalty. You would avoid that penalty. And if need be, you, you know, would shoot from seven, eight o'clock at night, depending upon when nightfall came. And if you went to midnight or one o'clock in the morning or two in the morning uh, to get all the scenes done that you needed to get uh, done that were, uh, or nighttime scenes, so be it, because you didn't have to call the actors or the crew back the following day. They were uh, sleeping, sleeping in for the weekend. Now, so that that's basically how the show went. Um, you know, uh, whenever you reported to a show, you would uh, go to hair and makeup first thing. Where sometimes your call would be six in the morning if it was on a location. You know, usually sometimes 5.30, 6, 6.30, depending upon when they were ready to do your scenes. You go uh, for the guys, uh, you know, you go and you get, they put on the pancake makeup. And uh, for the women, you know, of course, the hairstylists uh, was more active with their hairstyling. And then uh, you would get into wardrobe and uh, usually had a portable dressing room. And you would sit and wait for the uh, second assistant director to come and call, get, uh, come and get you. And then you go to the set and you would rehearse your scene and, and then they'd block it for the camera and then you would shoot it. That's basically what would go on. And when you would shoot a scene, a lot of times you might shoot a, they might shoot a master shot, which is a, a long shot encompassing everybody in the scene. And then at some point, uh, according to way the, the way the director prepared a script, he would move in for a a two shot or an over the shoulder where they would shoot over your shoulder toward the other actor and vice versa. And each time they would do that, they would stop the camera, they would relight the scene, 
the actors would go off stage and they would rehearse their lines or just relax. And the second team would come in. Those were stand-ins, actors or actresses that were basically the same height, uh, wore the same type of wardrobe. And that's how the uh, cameraman and the director and the, the, the tech people would light the scene uh, using them as the real life actor. And then once the scene was lit and they were ready to shoot, first assistant will go out first team. And that meant the actors come back into the scene, take their places and you would shoot the scene. And wow. that's basically the way it was done in TV master two shot or over the shoulder close up. If, if need be sometimes right. according to what was going on in the scene, there was a telling moment they might move in for a close-up. And I, I will tell you this, that um, as long as uh, you understood the camera uh, and the, 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 the revelations it was capable of, of bringing out, you were better off. In other words, less is more. Where on the stage, you would project you know, to an audience if you're doing a stage play. And the camera, there was no such thing as projection. The camera picked up every nuance and it was very revelatory. So uh, a lot of your acting, especially in a close-up, you would do with your eyes and your expressions, you know. Now, I'm curious. I, I know why some shows ended. Danny Thomas, after 11 years, they all got tired. They didn't want to do it anymore. Same thing with Perry Mason, Raymond Burgess. They, they didn't want to do it anymore. In the early Lassie episodes, Jan Clayton and Tommy Reddick both, Tommy didn't want to play a little kid anymore, and, and Jan Clayton wanted to move on to other things. Obvious mm -hmm. question, what happened with Quincy? If it was so successful, why did they cancel it? Well, I think toward the end, the ratings were slipping. You know, it was on from 1976 to 1983, and uh, that's a long time. They did, I think, 116 episodes. So Jack was tired, and there were, you know, there there were times during the series where he wanted out. You know, at the end of three years, I think in the fourth year, uh, he hit a wall. He uh, he told me once, "I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm I'm. Uh, I feel like I'm I'm using my hands a lot, and I'm just not." You know, um, um, uh, and he was not one to get mechanical. You know, he was an organic actor, and, and he. Uh, but the scripts were not were not were not to his liking, and uh, you know, it wasn't again to the last four years that he found uh, a, a crew of writers that could could uh, give him what he wanted. You know, and David Mosinger was the executive producer, was a wonderful writer, and. Um, all those people that were on his writing staff went on to other shows when Quincy went off the air as proof of the pudding, but he was tired and he was, uh, exhausted. And, you know, uh, uh, had he not gotten the writing staff the last three years, uh, I don't know what would have happened three or four years because it, at one point right in the middle, he was ready to bolt, but, uh, uh, the studio would not allow it and uh, had a con he had a contract and he was in uh, a very awkward situation. But even then he was tired, bored and very unhappy. 
So uh, the the new writing staff resuscitated him, I think, and allowed him to do the shows that he wanted to do. And uh, uh, Quincy went on for another three or four years, you know. Oh, and just- uh, but at, at the, at, by the by the end of this seventh or eighth season, you know that the, the, I always say seven or eight because the first season was really actually five 90 minute shows that rotated with Columbo McLeod, McMillan and wife was the Sunday night mystery movie. Okay. Then, and that went from September to January and February they went or March, they went to an hour and they did 10, one hour episodes. They did one, two hour episode as an introduction so a lot of the TV pundits or historians say that was the second season when they did the two, the uh, the ten one-hour episodes uh, with the two-hour episode Snake Eyes, which was about Legionnaires' disease in Las Vegas, based on what happened in Philadelphia at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel uh, mm-hmm. as the as the premiere episode. I never counted that as a second season in my book because I counted season one September to June which encompassed the five 90-minute shows and then the 10 one-hour shows. But, you know, technically it was a second. So I thought seven seasons, but when you if you count the uh, second part of uh, that, that season, actually, as a separate season, that would be eight. So that's why in our conversation I say seven or eight. And I strange, did that in the book. Strange question. To the best mm-hmm. of my knowledge, I never heard Quincy called anything but that. He never had a first name. Well, it was revealed in an episode. Uh, uh, I forget. I, I indicate what episode was. His name began with an R. In one episode, he showed his identification to somebody, and there, and whoever shot the scene, the director did a close-up of the ID card, and it said Doctor R. Quincy. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but you I are think right. You're right. I, think- you, I think you are. You are also right in saying that. Um, his first name was never revealed, no. Right. Um, now, give yourself some credit here. Tell me about some of the episodes you acted in and also that you wrote, if you can remember them all off the top of, as my teacher used to well, say, there were. your little pointed head. <laughs> there weren't that many. Uh, I did six as an actor. I was supposed to do seven, but it didn't work. If something There was a snag somewhere. So I didn't get to do the seventh one, but I did six as an actor uh, and I did three as a writer. I wrote a fourth script, but uh, it, it, it actually it was a story and I, I was going to script on it, but it didn't, uh, it didn't pan a Jack didn't feel there were enough friends, enough of a forensic element in the story. See, that's another testament to him that he didn't want to, you know, just do a, a caper show if he could. He wanted to, to incorporate something uh, that had to do with forensic science. The I, first I you... one I did, the first one I did was a, I think I was cut out of it mostly, but the first one was the first 90 minute show. I played a policeman who shoots a guy and tries to justify why he did it. The second one I did was uh, a show uh, where I was a policeman again uh, it was an interesting scene. Robert Colbert was in it. Uh, he was actually the heavy. 
and uh, Belinda Montgomery was in it, and it was a show about uh, uh, wife abuse. And, Can you uh, give me some titles? Uh, or no? I know you yes, I, 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 I can. I, if I pull out the book here, I can, t- can tell you exactly. I have to take a little trip here to get my book and pull it out. <laughs> the first one was called Go Fight City Hall to the Death, but I think when they wound up editing it, I, I might have lost a lot of what I did in the original because I had a monologue. And, but I did. somebody gave me a tape of it, and I was, there was a scene where you see me talking to Sergeant Brill while Quincy's conversing with Monaghan. It was shot at the marina, that scene. But I didn't have a lot. The second, the second show, anyway, um, I'll, I'll come back to that while I find it. The third show I did was uh, one I wrote uh, with Jack. I had one scene with Ian Lloyd Nolan. I played a worker at a, uh, a home for challenged kids. Uh, that was called A Test for Living. Uh, I wrote a show about a disappearance of a boy that's presumed dead. That was called Dead and Alive. That was a mystery. That was with John Daner and Ann Francis. Um, then I did. I think uh, I saw that. Yeah, I think I saw that. That that had yeah. I played the boyfriend. Life. Yeah, I I played. Yeah, that one. Oh, I'll forgive me. Dead and Alive was with uh, Priscilla Pointer, and. Um, uh, God, who else was in it? Nick Georgiata was in The Untouchables. He played Rossi, Agent Rossi. Oh, yeah. yeah, Nick. And Harry Landers, who was a doc. He played uh, uh, Dr. Doctor Hoffman and Ben Casey. He had a lot, a lot of good actors. It was Dead and Alive, yeah. The the show with John Daner and Anne Francis was called uh, Physician Heal Thyself. That was about an alcoholic doctor who botches an operation. And oh, I played the uh, girlfriend's... Uh, the girl, the girl's boyfriend, who he, who be, who's the victim. That was uh, a ninety-minute. Was that a ninety-minute? No, no, show? no, no, no. The only ninety-minute one was the first. Was the first episode called "Go Fight City Hall to the Death." The one about the, um, what was the sick? This, the, I'm trying to find it here. The second season uh, about the wife abuse. Uh, it was called accomplice accomplice to murder and that was the one with bob colbert and uh, belinda montgomery and uh there were some other people in it that were very good people but byron morrow and ford rainey was a very wonderful character actor he played the doctor in it jack has a great scene with with uh, with him a confrontation scene, and he well, at the end of the the end of the end of the scene, and he he's not forthcoming when he should be the doctor. And Ford Rainey was a very dignified man, you know. Mm. And uh, he says to Jack, he says, "Now if you'll," he's trying to dismiss Quincy in his office. He goes, "Now if you'll excuse me," and Jack stands up and he says, "I don't have the power," and he walks <laughs> out. I mean, they were just great. Jack would come up with these great lines, you know. I mean, well, uh, we only have we only have a couple of minutes left. So, how can people find your books? I'm sure there's a website or all kinds of stuff. Well, Amazon. Find out more information. Amazon. They're all on Amazon. Okay. And I have a website called Classic T 
tvseriesbooks.com. There are other places, but I can't think of them right now. Actually, the website is a conduit to Amazon. But on the website, you can read up uh, uh, on the books. And on Amazon, of course, you can read the reviews. Mm -hmm. I did, uh, I did, let's see, I did Route 66, Naked City, Wagon Train, uh, Peyton Place, The Invaders, The Streets of San Francisco, and Quincy. And the the book that I, we got to talk about this, and if you give me a minute, is my latest book, which I did not write, and that is The Many Faces of Nehemiah. I published it. That is the the memoirs of Nehemiah Persoff, who is the oldest living surviving character actor in Hollywood at 102. That's a wonderful book. Oh. It's, it's all about his journey from Jerusalem as a small boy to uh, living in Brooklyn and working in the subway and, and being admitted to the actor's studio and, and, and the cultural clash that he experienced coming from uh, you know, what was then the British mandate of Palestine to New York and the ethical clash uh, because he was he was very idealistic, and you know the uh, the cultural clash he experienced with the entertainment industry, and yeah. it's all about his reactions and feelings, and also, you know, there's also uh, mention and talking about all the the people he worked with, the anecdotes of all the iconic actors he worked with, John Wayne and Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney and Barbara Streisand. It's a it's a really uh, it's a it's a very interesting book done with humor and poignancy, and I highly recommend it. I I don't know how familiar you are with him. I would think you would know who he is because oh yes, he was he was one of the most respected character actors in Hollywood. Yep, I know who he yeah. is. I I I always and, and we haven't got much time left. But when anybody says Nehemiah Persoff to me, all I can think of right off the top of my head is him playing Jake Guzik in The Untouchables. Yeah, that and a lot of people remember him from Some Like It Hot, playing Little Bonaparte yep. and yep. Barbara Streisand's father and Yentl. Yeah, he he was in so many things. Yeah. Anyway, well, uh, thank you for uh, having me. I, I want to thank you. You are a credit to the world of show business. Um, you are a gentleman, and and a pleasure to talk with. I think the first time we talked, we must have talked almost two hours, and I don't was it that long? Yeah, I think so. I don't usually talk to people that long. <laughs> and enjoy well, you every were, minute of it. Well, you, I know you were very interested in Quincy, and, and I started reliving all these memories, and you know, because I, I had the advantage of being there, you know. So Yeah, that makes anywhere. it even better. But listen, we will have you back, because I do want to discuss shows like Wagon Train. I watched that. As I told you once, I met Robert Horton. Uh, yeah, he was a good, he was a good fella. He was helpful and, to me when I did the and, book. Yeah, and interviewed him. And it's funny because I'll, I'll always remember this statistic. At at one point in the late fifties, like fifty nine, there were thirty nine westerns on the mm-hmm. air on all three networks. That's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It was amazing. But Western but we heaven. will talk about we will talk about that. I promise I will have you back another time. Um, but thank you again for sharing your memories with of Quincy with us. And as I said, it's it's you're a credit to the world of show business. And um, I just hope you're around to write more for a long, long time. Well, bless your heart. Thank you, and uh, and, and also thank you very much for having me. Oh, please, it's my pleasure. And that will do it. 
for this edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.